you may recall learning about the way in which a hematopoietic stem cell differentiates and how it can mature into a functioning cell. Though we develop our approach to abnormal leukocyte values through our training in medicine, it may be challenging to interpret the remainder of the differential. Take eosinophils, for instance. Have you ever wondered why the peripheral blood eosinophil count always seems to be 0.5 times 10 to the 9 per liter? Or why the attending physician wants to send strongyloides serology when the eosinophils are elevated? What is the function of these eosinophils? And more importantly, what does a high eosinophil count indicate? Today, our patient has eosinophilia, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled A Granular Problem, How to Approach Eosinophilia, and is aimed at helping you interpret an elevated eosinophil count. Time for our minute physiology. Eosinophils are terminally differentiated cells derived from the myeloid lineage of hematopoietic stem cells. They are granulocytes, like neutrophils and basophils, and release cytotoxic proteins as part of the degranulation process. Their functions are diverse, including bolstering immune response to infection, conducting cancer surveillance, and promoting tissue remodeling. Cytokines, including IL-5 and IL-3, are crucial to the maturation of eosinophils, while also serving anti-apoptotic functions. While predominantly localized to tissues such as the GI tract, spleen, and lymph nodes, eosinophils can migrate into the bloodstream and can infiltrate into some tissues causing disease. This has been associated with widespread inflammation, vasculitis, thrombosis, and fibrosis in pathologic states. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Eosinophilia in the peripheral blood is generally defined by an absolute peripheral blood eosinophil count of greater than 0.5 times 10 to the 9 per liter, though this may vary depending on ethnicity. When assessing eosinophilia, always take a systemic approach. You need to obtain a comprehensive history and perform a physical examination while assessing for clinical stability as you would for any medical issue. Note that you may have local tissue eosinophilia in addition to or independent of peripheral blood eosinophilia. Local eosinophilic deposition is implicated in the pathophysiology of several diseases and can affect almost every single organ in the body. This is beyond the scope of this podcast, and thus when referring to eosinophilia, we will be focusing on the peripheral blood count. Perhaps the easiest way to consolidate your approach to a high eosinophil count is to consider clonality. This is the same principle used when interpreting a protein electrophoresis test or flow cytometry of a fluid sample. What do we mean by clonality? Most systemic disorders will increase cytokine levels, which then stimulate several eosinophil lineages to differentiate and create a polyclonal expansion of these cells. However, if there is a neoplasm driving this process, then all the eosinophils will be genetically identical. We would refer to this group of cells as monoclonal. Essentially, this means that the differential diagnosis is divided into primary eosinophilia, i.e. driven by a neoplastic process, and secondary eosinophilia, where a systemic disorder is driving the maturation of multiple eosinophil lineages. The degree of eosinophilia can often be helpful in differentiating primary from secondary causes. Eosinophil counts greater than 1.5 times 10 to the 9 per liter are more likely to be associated with a clonal disorder. The first step in evaluating an eosinophil count is to check previous blood counts, in case this is a spurious result, and consider repeating the test. Next, consider the clinical context of the patient. Are they critically ill due to sepsis? Are they undergoing treatment for malignancy? Or are they a healthy outpatient? Eosinophilia may be seen in any state with significant inflammation. This can include infection of bacterial, viral, fungal, or parasitic etiology, solid tumor malignancy, 
lymphoid malignancy, often T-cell mediated, or autoimmune disease, among others. Note that there may also be daily variation in the eosinophil count within physiologic limits. Persistent eosinophilia, however, raises concern for underlying pathology such as hypereosinophilic syndrome. Let's start by focusing on some notable infectious causes of eosinophilia. Parasites, particularly helminthic infections, are often associated with peripheral eosinophilia. Examples of acute helminthic infections causing eosinophilia include schistosomiasis, trichinosis, or ascariasis, while chronic infections caused by strongyloides and echinococcus can also result in a mild to moderate, 0.5 to 5 times 10 to the 9 per liter, eosinophilia. Note that patients with chronic parasitic infections may be otherwise asymptomatic. Taking a detailed travel history, considering endemic pathogens, and history of immunosuppression is essential in approaching eosinophilia. In addition, consider fungal infections such as coccidiomycosis, histoplasmosis, and cryptococcus, particularly if they're associated respiratory and neurologic symptoms from an endemic region. Finally, always consider HIV on your differential diagnosis for eosinophilia. Atopic disease can often be associated with peripheral eosinophilia. The spectrum of diseases includes asthma, allergies, and atopic dermatitis. In patients with a strong family history or symptoms, this may help inform your diagnosis and guide your workup. For instance, in a patient with nocturnal cough with a positive smoking history who you suspect might have an airway disorder, the presence of eosinophilia may indicate an inflammatory component to their disease. Note that peripheral eosinophilia is not required to make a diagnosis of asthma or other atopic disease. Every approach in medicine must include drug effects, and eosinophilia is no exception to this rule. Almost all classes of drugs have been associated with asymptomatic eosinophilia. More concerning, however, is the dreaded DRESS syndrome. DRESS refers to a conglomerate of drug reaction, eosinophilia, and systemic symptoms which typically occurs days to weeks after initiation of a medication. Most commonly, this has been associated with allopurinol, antiepileptics such as carbamazepine, phenytoin, or lamotrigine, as well as antibiotics such as vancomycin and sulfamethoxazole. Symptoms can include fever, lymphadenopathy, and organ involvement, skin with maculopapular rash, liver with elevated liver enzymes and rarely acute liver failure, acute kidney injury, among others. As we mentioned previously, eosinophils play a key role in our body's inflammatory response. Thus, it should be no surprise that eosinophilia can be associated with many autoimmune diseases. Consider eGPA, or eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, in the right clinical context. This rare small vessel vasculitis syndrome, typically associated with asthma, rhinosinusitis, and peripheral neuropathy, includes eosinophilia of greater than 10% of the total leukocyte count in the American College of Rheumatology criteria. Note that ANCA testing is often negative in eGPA, but if present, will likely be P-ANCA positive. Other notable autoimmune diseases with eosinophilia include IgG4 disease, sarcoidosis, and inflammatory bowel disease. Other commonly encountered causes of secondary eosinophilia include eosinophilia secondary to solid tumor malignancies and adrenal insufficiency. It has been proposed that loss of endogenous glucocorticoids can result in upregulation of eosinophils, and thus can support a possible diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency. However, it is often challenging to pinpoint eosinophilia to a single etiology, particularly given patients can have overlapping syndromes. Now that we've covered the most prominent secondary causes of eosinophilia, we'll move on to discuss primary eosinophilia syndromes. In any patient with a rapidly rising eosinophil count, particularly if greater than 5 times 10 to the 9 per liter, 
you need to consider acute eosinophilic leukemia. This life-threatening disorder is along the spectrum of acute myeloid leukemias, often associated with translocation 16-16 upon karyotype testing. Acute eosinophilic leukemia is characterized by immature eosinophils and myeloblasts in blood or bone marrow, along with cytopenias, resulting in increased susceptibility to infection, bleeding, or severe fatigue. Early detection and treatment initiation is generally associated with a favorable prognosis. Almost all causes of primary eosinophilia fall under the umbrella of hypereosinophilic syndromes, HES. These are a heterogeneous group of disorders characterized by a peripheral eosinophil count of greater than 1.5 times 10 to the 9 per liter, along with end-organ dysfunction resulting from eosinophil deposition. With the advent of mutation analysis, consensus definitions for HES have not been well established, and there is significant variability in the guidelines for management. However, it is helpful to characterize hypereosinophilic syndromes based on the progenitor cell of origin. Myeloproliferative neoplasms, MPNs, are strongly implicated in hypereosinophilic syndromes, where aberrant myeloid cell populations result in overproduction of mature eosinophils. Chronic myeloid leukemia, for instance, should be on your differential, pun intended, if you see a universal increase in granulocytes, i.e. neutrophils, eosinophils, and basophils, elevated platelets, and splenomegaly. Other MPNs, such as those associated with translocation of PDGFR-A, platelet-derived growth factor A, PDGFR-B, or FGFR-1, formerly known as chronic eosinophilic leukemias, are also strongly associated with eosinophilia. Peripheral blood testing for molecular testing accompanied by bone marrow biopsy is usually required for diagnosis. Other hypereosinophilic syndromes can occur due to aberrant lymphoid cell populations that produce excess cytokines and drive eosinophil differentiation. Systemic mastocytosis, a clonal mast cell disorder with recurrent urticaria, can also be associated with eosinophilia, though the eosinophilia is not usually responsible for end-organ dysfunction in this condition. What are the end-organ effects of hypereosinophilic syndromes? Clinical manifestations of HES are varied, but typically will affect specific organs in addition to more widespread systemic effects such as thromboembolism and fever. By organ system, one may be affected by rash with skin involvement, congestive heart failure with cardiac involvement, pneumonia or bronchitis with respiratory involvement, and neuropathy or encephalopathy with neurologic involvement, among some examples. A high index of suspicion and knowledge of how to appropriately interpret an elevated eosinophil count in the clinical context is required to diagnose and manage HES. Let's talk about the workup. Let's say you are seeing a patient with a persistently elevated eosinophil count of 2 times 10 to the 9 per liter. How would you approach the workup for this patient? Start with a detailed history, including travel and family history, as well as comprehensive physical examination. Look for possible organ manifestations as well on your assessment. Next, recall that eosinophilia is most commonly secondary to a systemic process. Try to identify features of infection, autoimmune disease, atopic and allergic syndromes, or any associated drugs that could be implicated. Depending on the history, parasitic serology, ANA, and ANCA testing, and HIV serology could be obtained. Ensure you have an updated complete blood count, CBC, with a differential and peripheral blood smear for blasts on patients with moderate to severe eosinophilia. Accompanying this should be a full chemistry panel including electrolytes, creatinine, liver enzymes, and troponin to assess for organ involvement. ECG and echocardiographic evaluation are also recommended for cardiac screening, while pulmonary function testing should be arranged for potential respiratory involvement. In addition, CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis may be required to assess for splenomegaly and occult malignancy. If you are querying a hypereosinophilic syndrome, add quantitative immunoglobulins, including IgE, 
vitamin B12 level, and serum tryptase to your workup. These tests are typically elevated in the setting of HES, especially myeloid HES subtypes. Peripheral blood flow cytometry can also be obtained for lymphocyte phenotyping and assessing for aberrant clonal populations. BCR-ABL testing can be performed in patients who fit the clinical picture for CML. In patients with severe eosinophilia greater than 5 times 10 to the 9 per liter, a rapidly rising eosinophil count, or in whom the diagnosis is uncertain, a bone marrow biopsy with molecular studies is required. The most common mutations in MHES will involve PDGFR, and testing for this is essential given that there are targeted treatments. Note that greater than 20% blasts in bone marrow or peripheral blood would meet criteria for acute leukemia. Time to discuss treatment. Management of peripheral eosinophilia largely depends on identifying the underlying cause. In the setting of sepsis or malignancy, treatment should be focused on managing the disorder, and typically one will see subsequent resolution of eosinophilia. Always ensure you have assessed and achieved clinical stability first. In terms of specific secondary causes, patients with atopic disease may qualify for topical, inhaled, or systemic leukocorticoids. Anti-eosinophil differentiation therapy is also available with the use of IL-5 inhibitors, such as mepolizumab, and is used in severe asthma with peripheral eosinophilia. For DRESS syndrome, management is supportive and involves prompt discontinuation of the implicated drug. Glucocorticoids and other immunosuppressants can be considered for severe disease. EGPA is managed with induction therapies such as glucocorticoids and cyclophosphamide, followed by maintenance agents similar to ANCA-associated vasculitides. Multidisciplinary care is often required in the management of patients with complex underlying systemic disorders driving their eosinophilia. Let's move to discussing the management of primary eosinophilic disorders. Acute eosinophilic leukemias require hospitalization and induction chemotherapy like other acute myeloid leukemias. Allogenic stem cell transplants are offered to eligible patients. CML is treated with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which have revolutionized the previously dismal prognosis of these disorders. Systemic mastocytosis treatment varies depending on subtype of disease, ranging from trigger avoidance to chemoimmunotherapeutic agents. Hypereosinophilic syndromes typically require prompt intervention, especially if a patient has cardiac, neurologic, or thromboembolic complications. Empiric therapy may be required without proof of tissue eosinophilia if a biopsy would be challenging to obtain or delay prompt care. In general, treatment for HES involves the use of systemic corticosteroids. Doses vary depending on the subtype, with myeloid HES typically requiring higher upfront doses of corticosteroids, i.e. 1 mg per kilogram of prednisone equivalent therapy or higher. Most importantly, note that all patients should be screened for helminthic infection. Those with risk factors for strongyloides infection are given ivermectin, 200 micrograms per kilogram per day for two days, prophylactically, to prevent hyperinfection once steroids are commenced. Myeloid HES, such as CML and PDGFR-associated disease, is typically responsive to tyrosine kinase inhibitors, such as imatinib. Other agents, such as interferon alpha and hydroxyurea, have also been used, with varying success. Steroids-bearing agents are also part of the treatment algorithm and the development of IL-5 inhibitors such as mepolizumab have opened new pathways in targeted treatment domains for HES. Let's recap what we learned about peripheral eosinophilia today. Eosinophils are myeloid lineage cells that serve diverse roles in immune response and regulation, and their differentiation is regulated by several cytokines, including IL-5. They play an integral role in the pathophysiology of several diseases, 
ranging from infection, malignancy, allergic syndromes, and autoimmune disease. Approaching eosinophilia requires a thorough history and physical examination, as well as consideration for secondary causes. In the event of persistent, moderate to severe eosinophilia, it is essential to rule out and manage end-organ dysfunction, i.e. the heart and nervous system. Consider hypereosinophilic syndromes once more common secondary causes have been ruled out. Corticosteroids are often given as first-line therapy, but only after appropriate screening for infectious diseases and, if indicated, prophylaxis with ivermectin. Multidisciplinary care is often required in the management of patients with hypereosinophilic syndromes, given its diagnostic complexity and potential for end-organ damage. You didn't think we'd forget our medicine minute, did you? In 1981, an outbreak of a previously unknown condition was noted in Spain after ingestion of olive oil. It turned out that the olive oil in question was in fact an illicit denatured aniline-based cooking oil that caused an epidemic, mostly affecting people between the ages of 30 to 50. Nearly 20,000 people were affected by the toxic oil syndrome, presenting initially with fever, eosinophilia, myalgias, and pulmonary edema. However, many patients also experienced a permanent scleroderma-like condition later in the disease course, with clinical features of sclerodactyly, polyneuropathy, and pulmonary hypertension. Eosinophils are implicated in the pathophysiology of this condition, which has fortunately seen a marked decrease in incidence since the withdrawal of this oil formulation. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled A Granular Problem, How to Approach Eosinophilia. This episode is written by Dr. Shreyash Dalmia, Hematology Fellow, and reviewed by Dr. Siraj Mithawani, Hematology and Thrombosis, and Dr. John Neary, General Internal Medicine. The Internet Work Series is created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. Music production by Lakshman Vasanthamoen and sound bites from Luberman.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and infographic. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.